Research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. Zora Neale Hurston Hello listeners, and welcome to Everywhere and Nowhere, a true crime podcast dedicated to reviewing cold cases, missing cases, and other true crime mysteries in a hope to shed light on the dark path of criminal behavior. I'm your host, Grayson Snow. We have spent the first four episodes reviewing details in the Springfield 3 case, and other alleged victims of Larry Hall, and the similarities between these cases. This episode is going to be slightly different from our previous episode's format, in the sense that we are going to look into a specific tip that has been thrown around for a while. If you, the listener, like how this episode is done, We will do other future episodes regarding widely publicized tips and theories. And just in case you're wondering, we have decided to not do a deep dive episode about the parking lot theories at this time. We would have to be sent something different than what has been discussed over and over or hear from enough listeners that would like us to cover the matter for it to be compelling enough. For sure. We went back and forth about this for some time, but those theories have been talked to the 10th degree. And I really believe talking about the same things over and over will generate the same result instead of sparking new conversations and contemplations. So one last housekeeping tidbit before moving forward. Episodes of this podcast may contain expletives as well as moments depicting violence and sexual violence. Listeners, please be advised. I will make the announcement at the beginning of each episode moving forward, as well as specific warnings that may apply to an episode. Okay, so let's get started. The Camp Anoka post is something that we have seen a few Facebook and blog posts talking about over the years. To give a little history of the Camp Anoka legend in summary, children and teens in the local Springfield, Missouri area tell a story of a haunted campground, which in fact is actually the abandoned Anoka Lodge and not a campground. This lodge was near Lake Springfield, which logistically is adjacent to the current interchange of James River Freeway and Highway 65. While researching this further, we found that not many local individuals had ever referred to the location as a haunted plantation, mostly a haunted campsite where young people were murdered. As we researched, we found the lore to be untrue, and the murders did not actually occur at the lodge. Some of the comments we found about the post tend to question its validity, as well as its intent, so we wanted to take an episode and dedicate a real in-depth look into it. So here we are. 
We believe we have found the original blog post, which was made on crimescenainvestigations.blogspot.com, December 13th, 2013. Since then, it has been a topic covered in blogs, podcasts, and Facebook pages, as well as forums. One additional warning before we start reading the post. This episode discusses self-harm. If you or someone that may hear the podcast as it is playing is sensitive to this matter, please skip the episode or listen with caution and awareness to those around you. We will not be reading the blog post comment in its entirety, but we will be reviewing sections of the comment and discuss snippets of it through this episode. This podcast is dedicated to reviewing the details associated with these cases, not to bring the families, friends, or listeners any additional grief or pain. Be the difference and strive to display care and compassion where you can to these families and all associated with these cases. Because this comment was so hard to read, it really was hard for our team to pull together this episode. However, we felt that because of its popularity in the discussion groups, that it needed to be covered. While it is not the most prevalent of theories and details connected to the Springfield Three, it has been mentioned on more than just a few occasions that the post has potential validity. With the intent of this podcast being such that we strive to spark conversations and discussions about the case, it was important to us to take the time and look at this comment in depth and provide our conjecture as well. If all it takes is one or two episodes discussing a comment we found online to give the story of the Springfield Three additional exposure, then we were happy to take the time to discuss it. No matter how hard we felt it would be to talk about it. 30 years is a long time for the same attributes and theories to be debated without taking a look at things from a different perspective or trying to dig into the hard parts of the history. It is a literal lifetime of people being interlaced into one theory or another that is obviously not drawn to a conclusion that will bring these women home. It is a literal lifetime the families have lived in the wake of the destruction and emptiness these lives once filled. And if all it takes is us taking the moment or two to look at things and bring discussions to light that may prompt the perpetrators or others to step up and open the discussions that may bring them home, then so be it. We will wander around this dark path just to see if it gets us closer. We will ask the hard questions and discuss the theories, even if they are the lesser known topics, just to see if we can shed a little more light 
and the dark paths of this case. So, with that said, I want to start by saying to the friends and family of the young man who took his life, you too do not deserve to have such a precious thing like a loved one taken from you tragically. My heart aches for you and your family and has since the first time I saw this post and read it. Loss is such a different path for each of us and I hope your path brings you closer to an understanding that helps your heart and soul. To the young man who wrote the post, I feel you suffered a great ordeal as well as I hope you do not see this podcast as an attack or refusal to understand what you've experienced. Just like I said about loss, a tragic event in life can have a similar impact, and I hope your path brings you closer to an understanding that helps your heart and soul as well. For all of you that are listening, I hope that reviewing the post as we have done here gives people a different perspective as well as gives some individuals answers as to why the post may have not been used to further an investigation. We are by no means an authority, nor do we speak for the FBI or police. I just feel that if we are able to find points that cause us to pause and ask for clarification, then the authorities who vet the tips and questions may have some reservations as well. I also want to say that we are in no way saying that what occurred here was false or fake. We are just looking at this from an analytical perspective. So, with that said... Review point number one. The comment alludes to the fact that the two young boys had walked way into deep woods that evening of the event. With use of the wording in the comment, we were deep off in the woods. We decided to start with this point because it sets the scene. With the statement, deep in those goddamn woods, myself, along with some of the analysts for the podcast, have always understood this to mean they had to trek into the woods for a fair distance to get to the camp. After reviewing aerial views of the camp location and further research provided by local analysts, the area that is referred to as the camp can be seen from Highway 60 when headed east towards Rogersville from Springfield. This is also near the current intersection of Highway 65 and Highway 60. And based on these two aspects, we find this point of way the hell in the woods as not plausible. Review point number two. The comment touches on the point that the events take place around 4 in the morning. So we have details of the women leaving the home of Janelle Kirby at around 
2.15 a.m. We have details of a possible sighting of Sediman, the dog, at a neighbor's house around 3 a.m., and friends of Levitt saying Sediman was notorious for running out the door when it was opened. If this sighting of Sediman is accurate, this puts the door potentially being opened at around 2.45 to 3 a.m. For discussion's sake, we will say this is possibly the timeline the girls arrive home. It is documented that the girls had time to prepare for bed based on the makeup being removed and the assumption that Stacy was going to sleep in her tea and undergarments and this is why she was dressed that way. So let's say that took approximately 30 minutes. This would put the young woman getting in bed at around 3.30. For discussion's sake, if they were interrupted during the time they were getting ready for bed, and we can speculate the women are taken sometime around this same time frame. This leaves a window of approximately one hour for the girls to arrive home get makeup removed, get ready for bed, be surprised by the subject, and all three women loaded in the van, then driven to the camp at around 4 a.m. It is completely plausible for the van to arrive at the camp around 4 a.m. It is plausible for them to arrive just before 4 a.m. Now, I'm not a profiler by any means, but to me, this says the subjects were organized, fluid, and had to have studied the Levitt home prior to the actual abduction, or at least one of the subjects had to. Review point number three. One aspect of the comment discusses the two young boys being 50 to 60 yards away from the event, and that visibility was horrible, but they could hear things from where they were located. The comment also states the young man writing will never forget their voices. According to the Guinness Book of World Records website, the normal intelligible outdoor range of the male voice in still air is 100 meters, 590 feet in 6.6 inches, which is approximately 196 yards, making this completely plausible. Review point number four. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned that this was a really hard episode for us to record. To that point, we had a hard time coming to terms with discussing the aspect that it mentions a young man taking his own life. In and of itself, the loss of life that is already associated to the Springfield 3 case is a high statistic already, given the idea that the women may have been murdered. To add in the aspect of a young man taking his own life, due to being witness to the event, adds additional tragedy to the death toll. 
With that said, this comment mentions the young man who is writing the comment lost his friend due to suicide before he returned the following summer. The statement Chuck harmed himself before he came back the following summer. So the timeline would put the following summer as summer of 1993. And this is based on June of 1992, being the summer the Springfield Three went missing. So this would put the date of Chuck's passing between July 1992 and June of 1993. I was unable to locate an obituary for anyone in the age range of 17 to 18, with the close name association meaning Charles, Chuck, Charlie, etc., with cause of death as self-inflicted during this time. The closest I could find was an obituary in November of 1993, which would be passed the following summer, therefore potentially proving the statement timeline is immediately inaccurate. I just want to pause here and state that the in-depth review of this post is not to necessarily poke holes in the statement, but it is to draw attention to the details, plain and simple. I am completely open to someone providing me any data that would prove the timeline with a credible source. I wanted to cover this point first and foremost and say, I feel there is for sure some validity within the statement, but without a credible source, this feels questionable and would give me pause if I were a law enforcement investigator reviewing the data. Review point number five. In one section of the comment, it states that the boys laid in the brush for four hours and that they were fortunate in the sense that the men left just before daylight, or they would have easily been seen. I find these points to be a little frustrating. If the timeline puts the van arriving at around 4 a.m. and they laid in the bushes for about four hours and the subjects did not leave until nearly daylight, then this puts a flaw in the amount of time they laid in the bushes. Using the van's arrival time at approximately 4 a.m., if the events that took place lasted for the four hours, these two laid in the brush until around 8 a.m. So, we researched it, and according to a post from an Encyclopedia Britannica editor on Britannica Beyond, he writes... Twilight, the period before sunrise, when sunlight, nonetheless, begins to lighten the sky, lasts different lengths of time for different latitudes and different seasons. If we count twilight starting from nautical twilight, when light is visible at the horizon, but the stars are still visible above the horizon, 
than in Chicago it lasts about 70 to 75 minutes in June, but about 65 minutes in October. At the equator, it lasts about 45 to 50 minutes year-round. According to Almanac.com, nautical twilight started on June 7, 1992, at approximately 4.43 a.m. and sunrise at 5.52 a.m., which would give approximately a total of 69 minutes between twilight and sunrise. Based on these two components of data, it is not plausible that they laid in the brush in the dark for four hours. It is implied that they were laying in the dark from the time the van arrived to the time they left just before daylight. Allowing for additional time, let's say the event started just before 4 at 3.52 a.m. and went until sunrise at 5.52 a.m. That window of time is still only two hours, not four. Because this is just how we as a collective group have been thus far, we played through the thought that some might have with the length of time being accurate at a total of four hours. While there are a multitude of things that could be plausible, we felt the time of 4 a.m. had some significance. So using that time, there were two scenarios we could come up with that felt significant enough for 4 a.m. to stand out. The time of 4 a.m. was the end time, which would put the start time at midnight, thus removing any doubt that it was not the Springfield 3, since the girls were seen as late as 2.15 a.m. Or 4 a.m. is the start time, and the boys laid in the brush for almost two hours before the men left, which would put the boys leaving at around 6 a.m., making the statement of them laying in the brush for four hours not plausible. However, if, say, the time was off and the boys laid in the brush for two hours, then this would be plausible since approximately 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., would fall into a more accurate time frame in regards to not being exposed due to daylight. This post does not give a specific time that the boys left the camp, just that the men left before daylight. So it is also plausible that the young men laid in the brush for some time after the men left which would allow for the additional two hours past daylight. This scenario seems far less likely given the two young men snuck out and would likely be attempting to get home without being noticed as having been gone. In this scenario, it leaves the entire abduction, rape, and murder as having occurred in just under three hours. If this were the case, it takes me back to my comment before that the subjects would have to be organized 
proving the abduction and rape was planned ahead of time, or proving these subjects were experienced. This scenario, however, opens up a whole new can of worms for me, as well as questions, of course. So for now, we won't jump into those questions. Because this point cannot be clarified, we feel review point five is not plausible. I want to pause here and just say again that this part of the episode will be discussing a graphic and violent nature, and the next point we will be discussing will contain these such items. Listeners, please be advised. Review point number six. In one part of the comment, the writer details that one of the individuals was killed at the beginning of the events that evening. Thursday, June 11, 1992, the weather headlines in the Springfield Newsleader read, Ozarks drenched in weather deluge, and the article features an image of the intersection at Battlefield and Fremont. This article talks about the close to three inches of rain that caused the localized flooding. Springfield Newsleader, Saturday, June 13th, Divers find nothing swimming Lake Springfield and checking the river and shorelines. While the idea of this being true is horrific in and of itself, given the weather which could have potentially caused any evidence to be washed away, therefore making it not visible in a search, it does make review point six seem plausible. Review point number seven. The last detail of the comment we want to cover is the comment that bodies were loaded in the van and they were possibly still alive. While it is alleged that Larry Hall is associated with the Springfield 3 case, during his confession and the Jessica Roach case, he states that he could not remember if he used starter fluid in her abduction. In researching what happens when you inhale starter fluid, we found more than one document that appeared to be some sort of safety manual regarding starter fluid. In reading these, they all seem to indicate that the inhalation can cause dizziness as well as unconsciousness. While Larry Hall's connection to the Springfield 3 case is alleged, the use of a chemical such as starter fluid does make review point number seven plausible. After it was all said and done, our overall opinion regarding the post details are plausible. The couple of items that did not completely connect could easily be explained. However, we felt that just because it could be explained, this did not support the idea that the post was in fact true, nor did it support that it was false. As we discussed these items among ourselves, the general consensus was pretty much an overall idea that if anyone experienced something such as this and survived it, there may be details that are easily mistaken. 
Like, for example, the event taking four hours. The only point we could not come to terms with was the statement of time for the passing of Chuck. We discussed that it is tragic no matter when he may have taken his life, but the statement of when is the only part we could not come to terms with collectively. I am sure that in our society today, we will have some group of people who rip us to shreds over us giving our opinion on the subject. And as we are entitled to our opinion, so are they. One of the things we have seen on many of the social media pages and forums is that many of the followers of the Springfield 3 case have theories and areas of speculation. In episode 2, we talk about how we have a figurative table with multiple puzzles and hundreds of people collectively working to put the puzzle pieces together. But have you ever put together a puzzle and got to the end and realized some pieces were missing? In our opinion, we really feel there are pieces of this puzzle hidden in conversations that are being conducted. But the people having these conversations are not aware that piece of information is what is missing. And the right people may not have that information yet. So, we want to hear from you about this post. In a future episode, we will cover your questions and theories about the Camp Winoka account. We have a group of amazing analysts that also want to put together a few out-of-the-box theories that we felt were worth sharing. But we'll cover that in the next episode of Everywhere and Nowhere. If you or someone you know wants to share a theory about Camp Winoka or any other details regarding the Springfield 3 case, send your theories to us here at Everywhere and Nowhere to be found at gmail.com. Sources for this podcast include Guinness Book of World Records.com, Crime Scene Investigations.blogspot.com, Almanac.com, the Springfield Newsleader, Christopher Martin's book Urges, a Chronicle of Serial Killer Larry Hall, UndergroundOzarks.com, The Camp Winoka Story, Beyond.Britannica.com, BumperToBumper.com, GuardOil.com, BurdenPolice.com. This episode of Everywhere and Nowhere was written by individuals who wish to remain anonymous. It has been read and edited by me, your host, Grayson Snow. This podcast is a Mouse Murder Productions LLC creation.